1 Peter 3, 8-22. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. As I'm out talking with people in our community about the Gospel, I find that most of the objections to the Christian message are not intellectual objections, they're not theological objections. It it may be that people have a difficulty believing the message that we are proclaiming, but those are not generally the objections they raise. The objections that I'm hearing are generally moral objections. They're not objections so much to Christianity, but they're objections to Christians. They're objections to how Christians have misbehaved. Now, um, when religious leaders misbehave, it always makes for good news, doesn't it? Uh, The news love to uh, present uh, times when people are preaching one thing but practicing another. We've had a counterexample to that in this last week, haven't we? With Billy Graham's death, it's been interesting to note how people are kind of falling over themselves uh, in the media and everywhere else to say nice things about Billy Graham. And uh, some of those have tried to dig up some things about Billy Graham, but they've had to go back decades, and when they've discovered things, Billy Graham already admitted these things and made amends for them decades ago, and they've been long forgotten. It seems to me that uh, among believers, but also among unbelievers, there is a desire, a desire to see people who really do practice what they preach. 
there is a, a fascination with somebody like Billy Graham, though not perfect by any means, but who over a long life, 99 years of life and many years of ministry, he was consistent in his lifestyle with the message that he preached. And there's a fascination, even a, a longing for that kind of person. There's a, there's a power there in this combination of proclaiming with one's mouth and living with one's life the same thing. And that's really the call of First Peter. If we could sum it up in a nutshell, what is Peter calling us to do? It's that. It's to preach and it is to practice what we preach. And he, we've seen that a number of times and he continues talking about righteous conduct. And then he talks about uh, righteous conduct. He describes it in verses 8 to 12. And then in verses 13 to 17, he talks about, well, what if we conduct ourselves righteously, but we suffer for it? And so he talks about righteous suffering as well. So look at verse 8. He says, finally. So here he's summing things up. He says, all of you. He describes five things here. He says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So he describes five things, the first two of which describe unity. The first word is something like same-mindedness, be of the same mind, be like-minded. And then the second one is same-feelingness. It's having sympathy, uh, having the same sort of passions. So it's unity of mind, unity of purpose, and unity of passion as well. That's a good description of, of the kind of unity that we should have as Christians. And by the way, when a group begins to uh, have outside pressure, as the Christians were receiving here in the time of, of, uh, of First Peter, there's a tendency for unity to break down. When outside pressure is applied, sometimes groups begin to, to fight with each other. And, and Peter is trying to head that off and saying, listen, uh, although there's pressure coming from outside, you need to have unity of purpose and you have unity of passion as well. And how are you going to do that? Well, then he gives three more words that explain to us how we're going to stay unified. He says, through brotherly love, the word Philadelphia, loving each other as brothers and sisters. The next word is a tender heart, a good heart towards one another, a good disposition towards one another. And then the fifth one, and the fifth one would really stand out. Because up to this point, uh, if a Roman were reading this letter, they would say, oh yes, those are all good qualities, we recognize those. You Christians are saying just what we're saying. And then he adds the last one, a humble mind. A humble mind, a lowly mind, thinking more of other people than we think about ourselves. And that would have been a despised quality among the Romans. That would have been the last thing they wanted to have. But if we're going to have unity, Peter says, we need to give preference to one another in the way we think about each other, uh, elevating them and reducing ourselves and our own importance. So that's, that's righteous conduct expressed in unity. But there's also righteous conduct, as he goes on to say, expressed in what we could call grace under fire. Grace under fire. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling or insult for insult. So if somebody does evil to you, if somebody insults you, he says, don't pay them back uh, with the same coin. But on the contrary, bless. 
On the contrary, somebody mistreats you, somebody insults you, instead of paying them with the same way, you should bless them. And he says, for to this you were called that you may receive a blessing. So first of all, we need to avoid personal retaliation. If somebody does something evil to us, we need not retaliate against them. And on the other hand, the positive side of that is the harder side. That's hard enough, isn't it? Not to, not to respond the same way if somebody treats us ill. That, that's hard enough just to, to keep our peace uh, and, and not to retaliate. But he takes it beyond that. He says not only should we not retaliate, but we should actually seek out the opportunity to do that person good, to bless that person. We might think, well, all I'm going to do is, I'm, I'm going to stay away from that person. I'm going to avoid that person. I'm going to, to try to keep my, my distance so I don't get hurt again and so there's no problem. But Peter says, no, it's actually going farther. It's actually seeking that person out in order to bless that person, in order to favor that person, in order to do that person good. I read an example uh, recently about someone who did that, a Christian, Soldiers are trained to do what? Among other things, but basically we think about soldiers are trained to do what? To fight, right? That's why we have soldiers. Well, this is a real story I read about a Christian soldier. And in his barracks, in the evening, when he had some free time, he would get out his Bible and he would read some scripture and he would have some prayer time. Now, he wasn't able to do this very privately because he was in the close quarters of the barracks. And there was another soldier, a fellow soldier, who took it upon himself to abuse him whenever he would do that. Uh, to insult him, to criticize him, to harass him, to do anything he could to make his life difficult. And one day, when uh, this soldier was there reading his Bible and having his devotional time, uh, the other soldier uh, stepped it up a little bit and took his muddy boots and hurled them at the Christian soldier. Now... Soldier, remember, soldiers are trained to do what? Think about this. You have a soldier trained to fight, uh, taunting and then uh, hurling his boots, muddy boots, at another soldier. What would be the, the expected outcome of that sort of an arrangement? Obviously, a brawl, right? Uh, you would think that a fight would break out. But the Christian didn't respond. But then the next day, the soldier who had hurled his boots found his boots, and he found his boots placed beside his bed, and they had been scrubbed, and they had been shined. Now, as far as I read the story, the owner of the boots did not become a Christian. That would have been the great end of the story, right? But others in that platoon did, as they watched this Christian not only not retaliate, but also to bless the person who was persecuting him. Now, this is so unnatural, unnatural to how we, we normally are, 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 seem to be wired to respond, and it is so radically Christian as a response that we need special encouragement to be able to do this. Okay, And Peter gives that to us. Peter gives that to us. If you look at verse 9, he says... The first encouragement is this. This is your calling as Christians. This is your calling. To this you were called. 
And we also can go back and find that, in fact, Jesus called us to do this. If you look at page 955, Luke chapter 6, 955 in the Bibles that are available to you, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, we find that Jesus called us to do this. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So Peter is not making something new up. He's remembering the words of Jesus. This is our calling as Christians. But there's another motivation here in verse 9. It says, Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may, what? Obtain, actually a better translation would be, a more accurate translation would be, inherit, that you may inherit, receive by inheritance, a blessing. So here's further motivation. It's your calling, but not only that, it's for your own good, that you may receive a blessing. You're called to do this, non-retaliation, but rather blessing, in order that you yourself might receive a blessing. Now, um, this is not a novelty, because Peter goes on in verses 10 to 12 to say, this is what Psalm 34 has already said. This is the second time we've read Psalm 34 in First Peter. And uh, it must have been one of his favorite uh, psalms, or at least the one that most fit the situation to which he was writing. And he, 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 he quotes it again. He says, would you like to, to see good days? How many here would like to see good days? Would you like to have good days? This is the blessing he's talking about. He says, if you'd like to have good days, keep your tongue from evil your lips from speaking deceit, turn away from evil in this context, turn away from retaliation, do good, do good even to those who have done evil to you, seek peace and pursue it, because there's a blessing here, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's a blessing promise. So this is motivation to behave this way. Now, This doesn't always work, although sometimes it helps. If you look at verse 13, Peter asks a question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter's saying, generally, if you do what is good, you won't be harmed. By the government, or by your boss, or by, in this context, your husband, or by your neighbors. In general, if you pursue what is good, uh, you will be less likely to be harmed, but not always, right? We just spent some time praying for Christians around the globe today who have been harmed and are being harmed for doing good. And Peter goes on to mention that in verse 14. He says, but even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So normally good conduct does not bring punishment, although there is that expression, no good deed goes unpunished. And there is something of a truth to that as well. Uh, Sometimes it is punished, good deeds. But when Peter wrote this, he wrote during the time of the Roman Empire. And he wrote during a time of peace in the Roman Empire, relative peace at least for Christians, uh, when they weren't being systematically persecuted for being Christians. But Peter knew that that could change. He knew that that could change. And he was preparing them for that time. I don't know what's coming for Christians in the United States. We just read and prayed some for what's happening 
to Christians in other parts of the world. None of us knows what's happening for Christians in the United States. But Peter is preparing us for whatever might come in the future. He says, even if, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now, Christians who suffer for righteousness sake, this says that they will be blessed, we will be blessed. This is a different word than the word he just used about blessing. This is the word we find in the Beatitudes. You know the the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Blessed are thee, blessed are thee, blessed are thee. Well, uh, that another translation for that is happy. Happy. So this is not only favored, but also joyful, happy. So that's part of the blessing if we suffer for doing good. Um, going back to Luke chapter 6, Jesus said that, Verse 22 of chapter 6 of Luke, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Leap for joy, he says. Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, he goes on here and talks about some of the advantages. We might not see any advantages in being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But he he goes on and shows that there are at least a couple of opportunities that we have if we are suffering for doing good. If you look at verse 15, or actually the end of 14, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And uh, in the context, he's saying, don't be afraid of your enemies. So what does opposition give us an opportunity to do? It gives us an opportunity to decide and then demonstrate whom we fear. If we fear our enemies, we'll act one way. If we fear the Lord overall, we'll act another way. If things are peaceful, we won't have that opportunity. But when there's opposition, then our fears will be manifest. Whom do we fear? And Peter says here, have no fear of them. We saw last week that what are they? They're creatures. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So, fear, reverence in awe, Christ the Lord is holy. And by the way, by the way, the Isaiah verses speak of the Lord of hosts, that we should honor the Lord of hosts as holy. And here Peter, with all naturalness, says, quoting that verse from Isaiah, he says, honor Christ the Lord as holy, substituting Christ the Lord in the place of the Lord of hosts. So, uh, someone may not believe that Jesus is actually God in human flesh, but uh, it's impossible to deny that the New Testament believes that. And here's a very clear verse that puts forth Jesus Christ in the place of the Lord of hosts. Now, um, the second opportunity we have when we receive opposition, when we receive unjust suffering, is we have an opportunity to explain our faith to others. 
And this might be counterintuitive. It might be counterintuitive not to fear those who want to do us harm. And it also may be counterintuitive to proclaim the gospel when people are trying to do us harm. Why? Because the tendency might be, if people are beginning to oppose us, the tendency might be to do what? To circle the wagons, to shut up, to pull into ourselves, not to make waves, try to fit in so that we don't get more opposition. But Peter says, on the contrary, on the contrary, this is an opportunity for you. Back to verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So be ready. If you have opposition, you should be ready for some questions. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's saying you should be ready to answer those who ask you about the hope is in you. Why would they be asking us about the hope that is in us? Because of our conduct. Uh, if if two soldiers, if some other soldiers, let's say, are watching what happened there, and they see the Christian, and they see him reading his Bible, and then they see the boots flying, and then the Christian gets up and plasters the owner of the boots, would any of anybody have had to say, why did you do that? No. Everybody knew why, and that's what most people would have done, right? There wouldn't be a need, a need to ask why. But then the next day when they see the shined boots there next to the bed, now there's a good reason to ask why, isn't there? Now there's a reason to say, why did you do that? After he treated you so vilely, why did you do that? So what does the Christian have? An opportunity. An opportunity to declare the hope that is in him. So this assumes that our lives... And this assumes that our response to those who mistreat us is so exemplary that it will demand an explanation. That people will want to know why we are behaving the way we are behaving. And he goes on to say, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We've seen this time and time and time again in Peter. So that even if they're looking for a way to criticize you, even if they're reviling you, eventually they have to say, I was wrong. And they glorify God because of His work in you. Peter concludes this section by saying, if we're going to suffer, let's make sure that it's uh, suffering for doing good, not for doing evil. If you suffer for doing evil, that's on you. I mean, that's, that's what you should expect. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, this all leads up to kind of the crescendo of this text. And you'll see this throughout Peter. Because we're probably at this point saying, come on. I mean, this is just, this is, this is superhuman. This is supernatural. This is beyond anything that, that we humans could come up with. This is not how I, I normally respond to insults. This is not normally how I respond to people mistreating me. Is this really realistic that a, that a human could respond that way? And immediately he says, in fact it is, and in fact it happened. Because Christ also suffered once for sins. 
And this is how Peter does it. He, 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 he shows the glory of Christian conduct and then he takes us back to the source of that Christian conduct, which is Christ Himself and what He has done for us. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. By the way, Peter told us to be prepared to explain the Christian message. And if you are sitting here saying, I really don't know how to explain the Christian message, just memorize verse 18 and you got it. This this is one of the, the most concise, compact, and rich explanations of the work of Christ in all of Scripture. Because it tells us that Christ suffered how many times? He suffered once. And this contrasts with all the the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament. He suffered one time. It's sufficient. He suffered for what reason? He suffered for sins. He suffered as a substitute, as an offering for sins, a sacrifice for sins. And then he explains how that sacrifice works. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, the word righteous is singular here, and it's masculine, and the word unrighteous is plural. So we could translate this, the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous ones. Who's the righteous one? Jesus. Jesus. Who are the unrighteous ones? We are. And then he says, what's the purpose of all that? That he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh as a man, but made alive in the spirit, in the spiritual realm, There you have a summary of the Gospel. So now you're ready. Go home and memorize verse 18. And the next time somebody asks you to give an answer for the hope that is in you, you'll have an answer. And the answer is this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, that He might bring us to God. That's the Gospel message. That's the good news. That's the reason for the hope that is in us. And that's the reason for Christian conduct, even in the face of mistreatment. Now, verses 19 to 21 are some of the most difficult verses to interpret in the whole New Testament. Martin Luther said they were the most difficult ones. And some helpful scholar has calculated that there are theoretically, at least, 180 possible interpretations to these verses. So I thought what we do is just quickly run through those 180. What do you think? No, we're not going to do that. And I have to admit that um, I, I thought I had come to a conclusion about what these were saying. And then over this last week, I've had to change my mind, but I haven't changed my mind to something that I'm sure of yet. And so I'm not going to preach to you something I'm not sure about. What we're going to do is focus on Focus on what's clear in this text and why Noah? Why Noah? What's the situation? Why does he bring up Noah all of a sudden? And and by the way, the various questions are, when did Christ preach? To whom did He preach? What did He preach? And those are the kind of questions that are debated about this, this section. Oh, and let me just say this, parenthetically, don't be alarmed by this. Don't be alarmed that there are two or three verses in the New Testament that are this difficult to understand because they are exceptional. They are exceptional. The New Testament is understandable. 
the New Testament, it's not up for grabs about what it means. It is clear and it is understandable. These verses are difficult because we're not Peter's original readers. They would have been clear to them. They had information that we don't have. And that's why they're unclear to us. Not because the Word of God is inherently unclear. But, but what can we say positively? What can we say about Noah? Well, Noah was in a situation like the original readers and the Christians in those days and Christians around the world in many places. And that was that he was a righteous man living out his faith, living out his godly conduct in a society that opposed him. And he was faithful in his day and God saw him through and saved him. Even though he was a small minority, God saved him through those waters that condemned the rest of the world to destruction. And then he makes the similitude. Peter, he says, Noah passed through waters. We pass through waters as we're baptized as Christians. And that baptism points to that which is effective in our salvation, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse uh, 21. Because only a few were saved in Noah's generation, they serve as an encouragement to Christians. An encouragement to Christians. We prayed for a young man today in a school uh, who's being persecuted for his faith. Only two Christians in that whole school. Isn't that what it said? Two Christians. Noah's an encouragement to that young man. There were only eight in Noah's day. But God saw them through. And this is an encouragement whether we be a majority or a very, very small and troubled and persecuted minority. God will see us through through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to question my personal authority to talk to you about unjust suffering, you would be correct. Because I have experienced very little of it in my life. Simply because of where I have lived geographically as a Christian. I have not been in a situation where I have been treated unjustly in any large degree because I am a Christian. And uh, the slightness of whatever I may have suffered for being a Christian was magnified today as we read about some of those severely persecuted Christians around the world in these last months. However, I'm not the one writing this letter. Peter wrote this letter, and Peter knew about which he wrote. Peter, by this time, had already been beaten by the Jewish authorities. Peter had already been imprisoned by King Herod. And Peter knew that soon things could get worse after he wrote this letter. And indeed, things did get worse. This letter was written in the early 60s. In 64, a fire broke out in the city of Rome. And it destroyed like 70% of Rome. The emperor was Nero. And the chief historian of that time who tells us about the events, Tacitus, reports to us that some suspicion was cast toward Nero that he had started the fire. 
And so Nero needed to cast the blame on someone. And so Nero found a convenient group, a group that didn't have political power or clout. And this group was the group called the Christians. And so he unleashed the first systematic persecution of Christians in which he had them thrown to the wild beast, in which he crucified them, in which he burned them alive. And also, according to the best traditions we have from Christian history, Peter was one of those who was crucified in that purge of Nero. But Peter, according to tradition, was crucified in a different way from everyone else because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified and to die in the same manner that his Lord had died for him. And so he politely requested that they crucify him upside down so that he would not be ashamed and die in the same way that his Lord had done when he was so unworthy of that. So Peter knew about which he wrote. And he would soon know much more about it. Peter was a man who preached and who practiced what he preached. And through this man Peter, God calls us in our day, in whatever situation we find ourselves, to preach and also to practice what we preach. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Christians whose conduct is so exemplary, whose lives go with their speech so coherently that they compel people to ask, why? And we pray that we would be among that number, O God, that no matter how people treat us, that our conduct would be so honorable, honoring to Christ and respectful toward others, that they would be compelled to ask us why and give us that opportunity to say, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, that He might bring us unrighteous ones to God. We pray, O God, that You would magnify our witness and as we have opportunities that You give us through mistreatment of others, that we would shine for Christ, that even our opponents would glorify You. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.